and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for February 2011. I am writer-critic-hyphen. Thank God Oscar season is over and we don't have to hear about it for another two months. Lee Zachariah, <laughs> with me as always, is... Hi there, I'm uh, writer-director-worst list of Academy Award nominee, Best Picture nominees in history, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us today is our very special guest... Melanie Coombs. And I am not a hyphenate anymore. Oh, I'm trying to work out which end the microphone's at. There we go. Yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, hi, everybody. I'm Melanie, and I am a producer. And happily, I've been just a producer for about 10 years now, which is um, it's nice to get to the point in your life when you're no longer a hyphenate. Well, yes, it's, uh, I, you are actually on the endangered species list as someone who is able to make a living out of producing. Yes, I know, film. but, you know, don't worry, I'm, I'm still on my toes. It's been a while since I financed a film and just been tap dancing around the um, uh, European film market at Berlin, which is why I'm a bit stuffed up. I've got, I've got the um, famous Berlin flu, so um, It apologies. is a very prestigious flu. Well, you know, if you're going to get a flu, why not get one from the Berlin Film Festival, There's I say. There's a chance you have Mike Lee's germs, which would be awesome. Well, <laughs> actually, I was in the same room as him, but, Ooh. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he, was, he was just standing on a stage being um, glorified by the um, at the British um, embassy so ah. yeah but um, no I didn't I didn't go go for the tongue <laughs> <laughs> I feel like the Berlin flu would have meant something completely different in World War two um, <laughs> anyway now um, Indeed. okay so you remember like it was sometime last year uh, I was really busy and I didn't see any of the new releases do you remember that uh, I do yes um, well I've actually made up for it and I've seen pretty much everything that has come out this month. It's, wow. it's kind of embarrassing. Although, we don't really want to spend 15 minutes on, on each of these films, so let's just run sure. through. So throw some titles out at me, and I'll tell you what I thought of them. Okay. Um, yeah, I feel a little bit like a psychologist here. It's like word association. Tell me about Chronicle. Brilliant. Contraband. Okay. <laughs> it's very insightful. Uh, gone. Silly. Uh, Man on a Ledge. Ludicrous. Not the rapper Ludacris, let's just make that clear. Um, Safe House. Seen it all before. Yeah. It looks like it wants to be a Tony Scott film, so, so bad it hurts. Um, Late Bloomers. Terrible. <laughs> Killer Elite. Boring. Uh, this Means War. Uh, pretty bad. Yeah, I think I could add some words of my own there. Uh, awful, r regressive, misogynistic. Okay, yeah, I'm... Annoying... I'm... I said pretty bad, I have to qualify it because I don't think it's nearly as bad as you and others have said. Yeah. I think it's pretty bad, I think it's a nightmare of gender politics. Um, but, you know what, it has a plot and it moves along. And I'm able to forgive it for that because I saw a film that didn't the same day, so I looked back on This Means War a lot more favourably than mm. I otherwise would have. Germans have their own words for things, you know, like Schadenfreude and stuff like that. Mm. Do they have a word for a film that's edited without actually looking at the monitor? Because that's what seemed to be going on in... <laughs> Any action scenes in This Means War? That's who the word is, McGee. <laughs> That's McGee, I think, in German. Uh, but yes, that is, that is where his name came from. So what is the film that uh, you saw that day that made you forgive This Means War's many, many evils? Well, this is, uh, this is where it gets painful for me. It's kind of like a breakup for me, because I, I love, and this will give away completely, I love Working Dog and... I love their radio, I love their TV, I love their, their first two movies. I, I love everything they produce, um, and uh, up to a point, and that point is Any Questions for Ben, Ooh. a film that I desperately want to love but, but cannot because nothing happens in it. 
there's, there's a quote that opens the film, a Hemingway quote, which is, do not mistake motion for action, which is one of the most deeply ironic quotes to open a film, given there is no action. I mean, <laughs> nothing happens, and I find that very, very frustrating. Mm, I... Have you seen this, Mel? No, I haven't. And I have to say, um, I kind of um, was... When I heard what the premise was, I kind of really did wonder... You know, Working Dog are so amazing usually at targeting an audience and having a really clearly identifiable audience and really kind of tapping into sort of um, a kind of, you know, really brilliantly mainstream focus. And I kind of did think to myself, wow, who's the audience for this? Because it really you know, from what I understand of the plot is, you know, it's about a smug, self-satisfied man who comes to realise um, that maybe there's more in life. Mm. And that's, you know, that's a hard job to, mm. con- to convince people that that's going to be a kind of fun tale. Well, it's, it's a world away from the, I guess, working class roots of, of the castle. And Paul, what you said to me when it, it it's, like, before we saw the film, uh, is spot on about it being, it's, it's the 1% film. Yep. And it is about that 1%, somebody who has everything. He's got uh, money, a dream job. Uh, you know, he can sleep with anyone he looks at, keeps taking overseas trips, this huge apartment in the middle of the CBD. Uh, what he has is a slight sense of ennui. And I don't think that's enough to propel us or make us really identify with him for two hours. Mm. It's interesting because I, I looked at this film. I, I didn't think it was all bad. I think it's really nicely paced. Um, it has a kind of... An energy that's all too absent in most Australian comedies. It's you know, it's not afraid to overlap dialogue. It's not afraid to get out of a scene right, right on a joke. It's not afraid. It's not afraid to kind of, um, sort of, I guess, kind of back itself a little bit. It does make some choices which are really, really odd. Um, the title cards introducing um, various characters are a little strange. Um, it's like show us what you want us to know about these characters, don't tell us. Yeah, they kind of appear and then disappear. Mm, yeah. mm. It's something, yeah, it's employed in the first couple of minutes and not again. But, look, I think in some ways, I think it's... Part of it reminded me of a... It seemed to be Working Dog's kind of... Or, more important, Rob Sitch's attempt at a Woody Allen film, to some extent. It seemed to be that kind of... Because, you know, Woody, a lot of, most Woody Allen films deal with upper-middle-class people mm. who have, you know, these great lives, you know, usually you know, professors at universities or writers or, you know, best-selling or whatever, or yeah. filmmakers or, you know, doctors or lawyers or what have you that suddenly hit these crises in life. And... I can see, I can see where you're going with that. Um, the crises in, in these Woody Allen films are usually represented by... I know what you're going to say. A story. A story. Things <laughs> happening. Um, there is conflict within the... Yeah, look, I mean, and I think the thing with him being in love with Rachel Taylor, I think that's very, very vaguely set up as a crush he had in high school that didn't quite work out. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I, it, I, I just think it's a little... It's, a little, it's just sloppy. Like, I don't think it's... I, I didn't feel it was bad so much as sloppy. Um, it's, it's very Richard Curtis at times as well, the wall-to-wall soundtrack and the, mm. the kind of this bit of a sprawling narrative. Look, I mean... I don't know, I'm going to come off as a Pollyanna here. I, I like, it's, it's weird. It's like I'm not a fan, but I'm a fan compared to you. Um, yeah, yeah. It's uh, like I thought some of the supporting players were great. Um, I, Ed Cavalier's amazing. I love his character in this. <laughs> it's, it's so weird. He's got, I've always loved him, but he's got so much range now having seen this character. It's just so weird. Yeah, see, I, re- I really liked Felicity Ward. I really, yeah, yeah. I quite like Christian Clark as his sort of 
dull friend, you know, not not so. I, I can't fault friend. any of the performances. Mm. Like I like them all. It's just there's no character really there for most of them to play. Yeah, uh, like yeah. I mean, the story is very fast and loose, but I, I don't know. I can't. I, I was entertained. I, I didn't find it, um, and, and I found that the one percent thing, it didn't. Maybe because I don't know. I think I've known people like this in the past, and it didn't seem as alien to me as. And it seemed like it was trying to exist. I was trying to play in the same sandpit as <laughs> something like Jerry Maguire, and I think it falls short of that. Mm. But it's not a million miles away from it either. Yeah, that thought it was okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to agree to. Lee is correct. <laughs> now, moving quickly along before you disagree. Agree to slightly disagree. <laughs> now, there, there is a really controversial film out at the moment uh, that came out this month. It's called Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. I know people, critics I trust quite a lot, who have said this is unforgivably bad. It is the worst Best Picture nominee in the history of the Oscars. Wow. Uh, yeah, there been, there's been some real vitriol. And if you look at the trailer... It kind of looks like that. It looks like uh, pulling at your heartstrings, using 9-11 imagery uh, to manipulate you, and there's a U2 song over the top. Um, <laughs> I, I have nothing against U2, but I really think we shouldn't use them in trailers. But I love the film. I absolutely love the film. I, I really, tr- I was in tears throughout it. I, it really got to me, and I'm, I've got quite a barrier up for you know films that really try to. Uh, manipulate you mm. and I didn't feel manipulated by this uh, it was a huge shock I'm a fan of the book but I there's something about Jonathan Safran Foer's books where like um, uh, everything is illuminated great book great movie I they're so different mm. yeah. so different it's the same again with this one uh, so different from the book but they both work on their own merits yeah, I gotta say I quite enjoyed it too yeah yeah, I, I was expecting something extremely emotionally manipulative and kind of ugly, and I just found it was a really interesting story of following these characters. And, and I mean, the boy, it's hinted at in the film and kind of dismissed, but he has Asperger's. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and I find a lot of reviewers of kind of anti, oh, it's a boy shouting at you for two hours. It's like they don't seem to really understand the condition. Yeah. Um, I, and you would think that... Film obsessives would understand Asperger's, <laughs> if anyone would. But isn't that... I haven't seen the film. Um, wouldn't that... Can't you say that that's criticism of the film if it hasn't communicated that essential story element clearly? Well, I feel it has. Mm. I mean, okay. they really make a big point of it. Um, I mean, it is a, a story about a, a kid dealing with the loss of his father, and it's not about, was it 9-11 terrible? I mean, mm. it's been... There been, I mean, the criticism being, being... I don't want to review other reviews, but the, one of the loudest criticisms has been that it's about uh, 9-11, and it's not. And this is something I felt when I read the book, where it, it just seemed like a background thing. It seemed like a, a way to propel the story forward. And I saw Saffron Foa speak recently, and he basically said that the first few drafts didn't have 9-11 in it, in it at all. It was when he said, it's set in New York around this time. It's uh, about a guy with a fear of heights. He, uh, somebody has to die at a certain point and it was his brother who said "Why you've got all the things in place make it about 9-11 and he went oh of course that." Mm. so it's not about that at all it yeah, just sort it's of context. uses that yeah, mm, yeah. And, and it's it's something that we all understand because we lived through it um, all the images and so on so we can sort of understand the pain I guess and it's I don't think it's uh, poorly used at all yeah look I think the only point I think we could have done without the falling imagery 
I loved it. Oh, see, that really it. made me uneasy. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's Hang like on, wh- which... All these various uh, moments. There's one scene where a particular cast member falls at you, which yeah. I thought was incredibly gauche. Uh, um, but, yeah. but, yeah, I, that aside, and, and, and to be fair, it's only employed sort of three or four times in the movie, mm. but I thought the rest of it was actually really sincerely and um, sensitively handled. Mm. And I, I was particularly taken in by the... F- Final, um, the final act when mm. Sandra Bullock's character, her, the mother, is talking to the son, mm. and their conversation and tying things back, and that in particular was was quite um, quite emotional. Yeah. Didn't quite cry, but got close. Well, there you go. That's made me want to go and see it. Good, because I thought it was just a schmaltzy film about nine eleven. So yeah, yeah. That's, there we go. They really should have sold it better, I think. And <laughs> hey, Max van Sydow is great. Yeah, he is too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so good. And fit-looking man for eighty-two. To like, it, they've made him up to look old, and he's kind of hunching over. It's like, no, no, no. He's way fitter than that. Yeah. Um, I for community fans out there, my nickname for the film is um, Young Abed Nadir and the Search for the Sixth Borough. Uh, <laughs> that works. What other films have you seen, Lee? <laughs> what other films have I seen? Yes. Well, get me into the cinema. I'm embarrassed. Well, I haven't seen these films. Well, here's one you may have seen. Yes. We uh, one of my very favourite films I saw last year at the uh, Melbourne International Film Festival, which has finally received a release this month, yeah. is Sean Durkin's Martha Marcy May Marlene. And I have seen it. Yay! Oh, I finally get to. <laughs> Isn't it fabulous? Oh. Mm. Yeah. And um and it's um. It, there's a there's a connection too to um, the person I'm going to talk about later, Ted Hope, um, who's one of the producers. But um, I think he's an EP on this film. But it, it is a spectacular film. I'll let you review it. You're the reviewers. I'll just chip in. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think uh, one of its big, biggest successes is it does do it does the thing of looking at a cult uh, or the cult of consumerism versus the cult of actually being in a cult, yeah. and it draws parallels between them. Uh, but doesn't fall into the trap of saying, see, they're exactly the same. Yeah. It does point out which one is worse, and it does make that clear, but it still says, you know what, there, there are areas of grey here. There are good, there's the good and the bad. Um, and that's a very, very clever and, and I guess, mature thing to do in a film, uh, and we don't get that very often. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I agree. I think it, it absolutely explores ambivalence in the true sense of the word, which is, you know, strong feelings on both sides. Um, in, a, in, in a really interesting way, without being dogmatic and uh, preachy, um, and you know, extraordinary performances. How and, good is Elizabeth Olsen? Where have they been hiding her? Well, exactly, and um, you know, and you know, w- what's her agent's number? Because she's absolute. I mean, she's just terrific. Yeah. And um, and and it's you know, the creepy guy is so super creepy. Oh, John Hawks. No, I mean, the man is born to play Charles Manson. Well, you know, and <laughs> you know, it's it is really. Um, it has that kind of almost sort of um, docudrama kind of feel in terms of the performances and the visual style. You know, it's elegantly made but not showy, you know. So beautiful. And everything that, uh, you know, a great low-budget indie feature should be, I think. I, there's so much going on in this film, uh, so many themes, like you, you both touched on them so well, but I, I feel like there's... It's very interesting, the fact that she's gone from one controlling environment to another controlling environment. Mm. Um, which says something about the people that are attracted to cults, I think, yeah. in a very subtle way. Yeah. The thing that really struck me, the first time I saw it, I must have been completely in in um, Martha's head, because mm. the second time I saw it, uh, this, the whole subjectivity of it hit me. 
Yeah. And suddenly it's like, oh, maybe this all didn't happen the way we're being shown. And right. it's it's a film that keeps revealing layers the more you see it, I think. And it is... And a lot of people have taken... Um, not a lot of people, but it's, the critics have, have taken issue with the film's physical beauty, with, with the way it's shot. And it's been compared to, I don't know, a Mark Jacobs catalogue or something. And yeah, I, right. And I think, I don't know, I, I like the point because I think that inhumanity and, and, and kind of... Um, cruelty doesn't discriminate you know and it's it can happen in the most beautiful and idyllic of places whether it's a multi-million dollar holiday house or an idyllic commune yeah and i think but i also think that that you're absolutely right it's about actually showing i mean one of the things about it is that um most um film and tv and stuff that explores the idea of people going into a cult go oh look it's all really bad and really unattractive and you know she's being brainwashed whereas to actually show it as beautiful and attractive and organic Mm. and, you know, all of those things, you know. People who find themselves in all sorts of situations in life aren't idiots. Mm. They are people who have somehow have been conned, you know. And the the con usually works, you know. There's a reason why people are conned. It's because con means, you know, convinced, Mm. you know. And there's a receptiveness, you know, to that, to the con. You know, I mean, if all cults were clearly, you know, you know, exploitative, you know, like, you know, for a young girl, you know, oh, why don't you come here? You'll be raped and you'll be this and you'll be that. I mean, of course, no one, you know, right? Why would go? They have to, you know, so I think that that, you know, as an argument, you know, um, I think it's much more powerful in that, that you actually see what she sees is attractive mm-hmm. about it. Absolutely. It's yeah. such a great, and such a strong debut too. Yeah. Like, yep, terrific. Love frustratingly it. strong. If you're a struggling filmmaker and you look at this, you might well throw your hands up in the air and go, And it well. was made for yeah. 600000 in the US too, which is wow. um, incredibly cheap. And, you know, I mean, it's very hard for us as Australian filmmakers to compare because we just don't have private money mm. um, available. So necessarily in a funny kind of way, that makes budgets higher. Yeah. Um, but, um, but, yeah, it's a great achievement. Go see. Well, that was one of the uh, films that, due to sort of film festivals and delayed release dates. There are a whole bunch of films that have come out this month that were uh, certainly on mine and Paul's favourite list of 2011. That was one. uh, The Artist was one, which we talked about a lot in the last podcast. Mm -hmm. Tyrannosaur and Shame. Uh, Shame was on my list last year. And all great films. Shame is quite extraordinary in that it was uh, co-written by the writer of The Iron Lady. Right which just baffles me because the Iron Lady is so bad and Shame is so good. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh... I have to draw attention to Tyrannosaur for a second. Please do. Um, because I'm a huge fan of Paddy Considine as an actor mm. and he makes his debut as a writer-director here and there's something just... I don't know. I mean, it, the British seem to be really gifted at this kind of so, uh, social realist kind of um, film, but there's such a... It just feels so real and so painful. and But also there's, you know, it's funny because, I mean, one of my complaints about an Australian film that a lot of people loved last year being Snowtown was it was set on the one volume mm-hmm. and there was no modulation and it's pain, 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 pain. And to me it takes more skill to occasionally weave a humorous moment to weave because that's what life is like, mm-hmm. you know. Even if, you're, even if you are painful, you know, even, even if your life is a constant cascade of pain, there, there are moments of mm-hmm. liberty, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and occasionally, and, and Tyrannosaur employs this really well. But although the levity is about three percent of the film, <laughs> um, but I do have to draw attention to the performance of Olivia Coleman 
mm. who is known in England as being a, com- a comedic actress, yeah. Yeah. who is in things like Peep Show and Hot Fuzz and um, uh, Shane, uh, Shane Meadows' Ladonk and Scorsese. And she is something else in this film. Yeah. Is just shattering, and why she like it's, it's funny because all the films you just read out then all snubbed by Oscar, mm. oh, oh, except right. for the artist, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, shame for Fassbender, who how he has not been nominated for a Best Actor, not I have no idea. It's bizarre, and um, yeah, and Coleman as well. They're just so so good. But I highly recommend both films. Um, shame is just a great character study of an addicted person. Um, and it happens in this case to be sex addiction, but mm. for mine it could be anything. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, um, yeah. it's almost a bit like any questions for Ben in that it's a guy with everything. He seems to have everything. Mm. He can get anyone he wants and he's got lots of money. But in this case, I really believed his anguish that he was... It was, it was almost an American psycho thing of everything looks yeah. perfect on the outside, everything inside is ruined and tumultuous and he's in trouble. Yeah, I've heard the American Psycho comparison quite a bit, and I yeah. think it's quite apt. I think that's fascinating, drawing the comparison with um, Any Questions for Ben, because, you know, in, in um, having not seen either of them, I confess, mm. um, I think it's it's really interesting, quite often, something I do as a producer is, is try and get um, filmmakers who have the same story to realise that having the same plot does not mean that you have the same theme, and what do you reckon the difference in the themes of the two films are, if I can put you on the spot? I... F- think or one is one is about a deep I mean shame is about a deep shame about how what society tells us uh, we are supposed to do sexually what we're supposed to feel mm. and a guy who has all these urges who just is, is so torn up by these this constant urge mm. that he has within him uh, that doesn't fit into into anything society allows um, or as any questions for Ben is just I I mean, I, I used it as a bit of a pejorative before, but it is a slight sense of ennui. It's like, I should be happy, but something's not quite right, and I don't really know what it is. And does he find out what's not quite, quite right at the end? Is it just that he's not yeah. loved, or yeah. he's not making a contribution, or...? Kind of. Oh, dear. It's, that, yeah. that's, this is my problem. It's, a, it's too vague. Okay. And, yeah, two other films that I, I think are definitely worth mentioning. Uh, the Grey which is very, very good, uh, Liam Neeson versus Wolves. I think very, very good is a good way to say it. I th- yep. A lot of people have been losing their minds over this film, and I'm not as convinced. Like, I think it's incredibly... The action scenes are incredibly intense. It creates a great sense of, of place and of claustrophobia. I think it goes for this kind of Hemingway sense of existential profundity mm. that it doesn't quite hit. But, uh, I, thought, but so I admire the hell out of it for trying. It doesn't yeah. come across as as silly as it would in other films, no. I think, which is... No, no thing, like, yeah. that's the thing. It's very much an Ernest Hemingway, Jack London-type story. Yeah, yeah. And I love that, you know, a January popcorn release is going for that kind of ambition. <laughs> and you know what? Full points to Carnahan for, for trying that out. And great ending. Really great yeah. ending. Uh, but the other film... which I could stand to hear the poem a couple of times less. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But an, another film, which which is one of my favourites uh, of the month, one of the, my favourite new new films I saw this month, My Week with Marilyn. Oh yeah, mm. which I I thought it would be good. This is this is I think amazing. I think it's it's the closest anyone has come to capturing uh, the best and worst of Marilyn Monroe ever. Since you know, I think if you've got this is at the top of the scale and at the bottom is that 
Quantum Leap episode where Sam Beckett has to play the bodyguard. And it's like, who is that blonde woman? Oh, it's supposed to be me. I love this uh, show. <laughs> I do love Quantum Leap, though. I think the big problem a lot of biopics have is they try to compress every event in somebody's life into two hours. This does what the best biopics do, which is take a small amount of time and explore somebody's character in that time. And is this the one that's based on the Joyce Carol Oates novel? I'm no, sure. it's based on Colin Clark's memoirs, the guy ah. who... And for me, that's where a little bit of the issue is. Mm. Um, I enjoyed this film. It's, yeah. very, it's very sweetly done. It's beautifully acted. It's well shot. And like, you can't sort of fault it on an aesthetic level. Mm. Unfortunately, I mean, our way in is through this, um, this Colin Clark character who's played by Eddie Redmayne and he's a third assistant director. He's a you know, hungry guy trying to get you know, experience on films. He ends up hooking up with Laurence Olivier and they, you know, he's working on The Prince and the Showgirl and soon he becomes Marilyn Monroe's confidant on set. Now, unfortunately, the coming-of-age story of him is incredibly mundane and I was far more interested in the Olivier Marilyn stuff. Like, to me, the Clash of the Titans was where the story was. And every time they kept coming back to him and Marilyn was just like, oh, come on, speed it up. I didn't really feel that, that, that dichotomy there. I, it was all just, it all felt like one cohesive story to me. So, I, yeah, when you say that, I'm, I'm trying to think which bits are the coming of age and which bits oh, right. are the Clash. It all just felt so, yeah, cohesive. Oh, him getting, you know, falling in love with someone who was inevitably going to break his heart and, you know. Just yeah, but they, they use those scenes to illuminate so much about her, which is what I... What I enjoyed. Yeah, I, don't know. I, th- I thought his character was pretty bland. Okay. Yeah, but but, but the rest of it, like I thought, Williams was fantastic. She's Marilyn, amazing. She does lack that. There's just that X factor that Marilyn had. Well, that's that the, is the only yeah. thing missing. But other than that, God, she gives it. A She's good come try. closer than anyone else. Oh, absolutely. Has, I think. And uh, Kenneth Branagh fulfilling a lifelong dream of playing Laurence Olivier. <laughs> I like to think. Does I'm, he have anywhere to go now on the Laurence Olivier life homage checklist? <laughs> well, I like to think that there is a young Shakespearean actor slash director who will one day fulfil his life dream in My Week with Kenneth, playing <laughs> Kenneth Branagh, playing Laurence Olivier. And it'll just become this Charlie Kaufman meta thing that goes yeah, on forever. My Week with Emma. There Emma Thompson and uh, Kenneth Branagh's breakup. Yeah. <laughs> the Academy Award nominations uh, were announced last month and very, very conservative uh, list of nominees. But, but, but By the way, the winners have been announced by the time you've heard this. Yes. You'll be listening, so. And so it'll be a very conservative list of winners. <laughs> but there's something that's, that the Oscars have brought into stark relief, which is the wave of nostalgia that seems to be sweeping the film world at the moment, in particular Hollywood. Mm. Um, with, I mean, we have a silent film in The Artist and we have a Georges Méliès tribute with Hugo and we've even got, you know... 60s civil rights nostalgia with the help and we've got War Horse which is basically a, a Pizzwick John Ford movie and this and you know and, and all this sort of thing but it even but even if you look deeper with we possibly I'm quite confident that we have more remakes going around now than at any other point in the history of Hollywood remakes yes yeah even things like Super 8 and Paul, which were love letters to Steven Spielberg last year, and Attack the Block, which for all intents and purposes is an 80s sort of John Carpenter meets Joe Dante type film. And then we've got, you know, from a couple of years ago, Grindhouse, and then the things that that's given birth to, like Hobo with a Shotgun and some of the other sort of low, lower budget director video stuff out there. And 
you start thinking, like, is, does this go beyond brand recognition? Like, is this saying something deeper about the culture? And I just wanted to talk about because it seems to be a huge thing at the moment. Um, look, I, you know, from um, my perspective as a producer, I mean, I think there is definitely something about the fact that um, after the global financial crisis, um, all of the studios became necessarily um, more conservative and um, looking to something that someone has made money out of before um, is a much um, better way to justify risk-taking than something completely new and fresh. And, you know, certainly... Um, you know, I mean, I personally had the experience with um, Mary and Max, which when we were making it, everyone wanted unique vision, um, you know, with an Oscar-winning short, but, mm. but definitely unique vision was definitely what they wanted. And then global financial crisis happened, and then in Americans in particular, yeah. um, not so keen on unique vision anymore, really much rather something else, you know, Charlie's Angels, you know, something that, that you, know, you know, isn't unique. And um, bless us, you know, Mary and Max, you know, Adam certainly does unique. So, yeah. um, and, you know, I mean, obviously the film has had its successes, but, you know, that, that thing of not kind of having the big US um, success was um, heartbreaking. But I think that there is something about that now. And even if you look at the mini majors, you know, your Focus Features and your Sony Pictures Classics and those companies, they're much less interested in supporting genuine new voices and much more, as you say, looking for something someone else made successful once before. Mm. And it even extends to films that weren't that successful the first time, like Tron Legacy is a sequel to a film that was a flop. But because Tron yeah. over the years has had this sort of... Cult thing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's like it's enough to sort of greenlight a $170 million sequel. It's really... That did seem a bit mad, didn't it? And things like horror remakes of films like April Fool's Day and My Bloody Valentine. It's like kids today wouldn't know what the hell the originals of those films well, I think were. the executives don't know either. They're looking through their catalogue. What, what titles do we own? A remake is safe. They have, they have that idea that this worked once, it'll work again, mm. even if it didn't work the first time. <laughs> it's just, this has been but it's done. Also, it's also the thing of um, people who are making decisions who are risk-adverse, mm. you know. And so even if it was a film that wasn't entirely successful first time, at least they've got something to look at and they can say, well, that's why I made the decision. Whereas making the decision um, on, I think this person has a voice, yeah. but I have no evidence... Do you know what I mean? It's Come on, you sound like it's Joan a, of Arc. Well, yeah. you know, or you know, I mean, I often say to people, you know, my business card says producer, but sometimes I think it should read fantasist hmm. because there is a large element of kind of you know taking the leap of faith and believing in something or someone or an idea for a story without having any kind of evidence, you know. And um, as I was saying to you guys earlier, you know, I've been pitching a project recently which I literally pitch as Fast and Furious, except the girls drive. Now, that is a really easy pitch, and mm. everyone understands, yep. oh, well, kind of, they've got an idea in their head of what that means immediately. Whereas if I have to tell you the story about, you know, there's this girl and she this and that, and it's the director's got this extremely unique vision and, you know, mm. everyone's turned off, yeah. you know. And so I have to confess that, you know, um, in the increasingly kind of celebrity culture, the only other way to cut through is it's either like X or it's actually X again. Yeah. It's it's funny though that I think that's the rationale behind financing them, and we've seen that shift for a while, and it's sad. But like the fact that this stuff's being, and I don't know if that's because just more stuff is nostalgic and a repeat now, but the fact that that stuff's being rewarded now is well, think, kind of another thing. And it's like it's almost like the peers are kind of looking at this stuff. Like, does it have anything to do with the fact that the film industry is changing? That now film is dead, digital is a thing. 
um, 3D's an attempt. Like, suddenly, you know, people are watching films on iPhones and computers and people aren't going to the movies anymore. And is it this attempt by Hollywood in particular to not a, not only reclaim but acknowledge its place in history? This is why we were important once. I, I think there are two different things we're talking about here. I think that there are deliberate... There are films that are not just like these films, but they are about them. So The Artist is about silent movies and Hugo is about the birth of cinema. Uh, we, we saw uh, NT Live uh, broadcast the National Theatre uh, production of Travelling Light, which is about the birth of cinema, again. And the director, Nick Heitner, I think it was, was asked about this, about you know, this coming out at the same time as Hugo and the Artist. And he said, sometimes these ideas just float around yeah. and they just happen to ha come at the same time. You know, we wouldn't be talking about it if they were five years apart. So I think they're, they're almost... But I think, why is that idea in the zeitgeist yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, everyone's always it. singing in the rain, back to singing in the rain, which was yeah. about silent movies. You but know, that was kind of an isolated event. Like, the fact that well, so it's not, much no, no, is no, I think there have been every days. few years there is something like that. Like, even Mel Brooks' silent movie. Mm. Uh, everything from that to, uh, to Brian De Palma's Hitchcock pastiches. There's always been an element... That, I agree that it's more now than ever mm. before. I think that there has always been this sort of sense of looking back, but now that there's this, all the directors are now film geeks, starting from Martin Scorsese through to Tarantino, and now everybody who wants to be Scorsese and Tarantino. And, you know, part and parcel of that is we look back at what came before, and mm. so... I think, too, and <clears throat> excuse me for being the old lady in the room, but... Um, uh, I think there is an element too of there's so much information available on the internet and like you know I really am going to apologise and sound like a really old person but like when I first started making films mm. uh, we didn't have computers on our desks and we didn't have mobile phones and I'm actually speaking into one right now you know so mm. like the technology has been extraordinary um, and so when we were at film school and I'm literally talking about the sort of you know mid 80s um, when I went to my first film school which was an undergraduate you know film and radio and all sorts of different course and you know the 16mm cam Bolex cameras were held together with sticky tape literally the amount of information about previous films and previous filmmakers and different genres and stuff like that it was much harder to be a film geek in those days do you mm. know what I mean whereas yeah. now anyone with a computer or an iPhone can can really geek out you know yeah. and you can see thousands of films and watch you know you don't even need to watch a film anymore I mean and you know I'm as guilty of this as anyone you just go onto iTunes or watch the trailer or go onto YouTube and watch a couple of clips and go you feel I like you've seen it you IMDB know? and Wikipedia and absolutely and so the idea of cinema as an immersive experience has really changed but also the amount of information people, I mean, you know, it's not uncommon for me to meet um, people like yourselves who see a film a day. Mm. Right? That's not an uncommon experience in this day and age. Whereas it was an extremely uncommon experience when I was in my 20s because it literally was damn near impossible yeah. because you'd have to be in a cinema pretty yeah. much to see a film or watch telly. So I have like weird areas of film I know heaps about, like Elvis movies. <laughs> right? Because when Elvis died... Channel 7 or 9 or whatever, put on an Elvis movie every Saturday afternoon for like what felt like a year. Yeah. So I, I know a hell of a lot about Elvis movies. But, but the other things I don't know anything about. But you know, you can see the connection I'm making, which is yeah, if you yeah. are, you now if you're a horror person, like horror people kind of, you know, like kind of like name check all the, you know, 47,000 films that they've seen. And, and they probably have seen them all. Mm. But yeah, um, so I think that, that that means that you necessarily think about um, where you fit. Whereas previously and potentially more arrogantly but potentially more finding unique voice, film, you know, filmmakers who were working in the past 
um, we're much more interested in like who am I and what am I saying and how do mm. I hone my story and I want to be unique and I have vision kind of stuff. And, you know, I don't know that either way is necessarily better, but I do, do think that it... I don't meet many new filmmakers now who come out of film school and say, my film is not like anything else. Mm. Yeah. And That's... usually, like, when you do meet people like that, you go... And you could be one of the people who is actually dangerously insane, as yeah. opposed to genuinely a new creative voice. But um, but sometimes, but it is it is a shame that you know celebrity culture and increasing commercialisation has stopped people um, aspiring to that. Yeah, you know that's a well, really good point. I think. Yeah, um, and that dovetails into your previous point about yeah. financiers not wanting original yeah. voices. It's like, yeah. well, if that's not encouraged, then why are people going to come out of school proclaiming it? Yeah, no, they're going absolutely. to go. Where do I fit? I'm, I'm Tarantino meets And also, Spielberg. you know, back in, in the giddy days of the, the 90s, it was, um, you know, we were all reading Face magazine and Stiletto, uh, for those who are old enough to remember that Australian magazine. And it was, they weren't full of celebrities. They were full of, like, kind of, you know, people being cool and arty, you know, and that was sort of what one aspired to and to being, being unique. Um, and... Uh, you know, it's sort of, you know, I'm sort of thinking about films and filmmakers like Hal Hartley and that kind of vibe, which was it's kind of like, you, or even John Sale or, you know, you wanted to create, you know, young filmmakers wanted to be like like them, mm. but not them, like me, yeah, you know, yeah, but they yeah. wanted to create their own kind of mm. brand, if you know what I mean. And I think that the the sense of that is is is, the egotism of that I really don't like, but the um, sense of kind of, you know, like when you see a film like Martha, Macy, May, Marlene, you think, well, that's someone who's really striking out mm. on their own and mm. it's not a film about a girl in a cult. It's an extraordinary film that happens to be about a girl in a cult. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that, that that sort of real sense of independent voices is something that it's also really hard to foster um, in a culture that's overwhelmed with material. I mean, yes. everyone is a film and television expert now and every single person um, can give you a reasonably fabulous review about just about anything. But, mm. you know, if you talk to most people now, you say, what did you think about X? They could go, well, it did sag a bit in the second act. And like, oh, hang on, you know, a lot mm. of people are experts now. I've noticed yeah. that too. I, when I was first a film geek in, you know, high school, nobody knew anything from cinematography or mm, and, and mm. I was like oh geez, I don't know if the editing really worked during that scene and uh, yeah that's the yeah. third act was a bit mm, and yeah, it didn't and have story momentum and where was the, where were the stakes yeah, it's like yeah, stuff yeah. that yeah yeah yeah, you know, yeah and those crane shots were a bit distracting and you're like <laughs> what yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think you know I mean I think the thing is that you know when one makes these broad brush stroke comments you know there's always you know there's always an exception to prove the rule um and it's never a conspiracy uh, you know in the, the amount of um you know you know people in hollywood aren't sitting around rubbing their hands together going ha 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 we're <laughs> going to crush original voices i don't think surely um, george lucas steven spielberg are <laughs> Around a cauldron, I picture. No, no, no. Digital cauldron. I think that they're desperately hoping that they still have something new to say, Mm, probably. But um, like another Star Wars film, that would be a really great original (laughs) thing to come out with. Now, now, Lee, you never know who's listening. Um, but no, I mean, I do think um, it just makes it, you know, like for someone like me who is really interested in kind of, um, you know, hopefully telling stories that, um, you know, are dynamic and unique and original and compelling and say something distinctive um, about Australia to the world, um, it is tough. It's tough times, you know, mm. because if you, and, you know, unless um, you can find a way to turn your, you know, um, exciting, compelling, um, girl centred story into the Fast and Furious but the Girls Drive. Um, 
which is my challenge, effectively, yeah. as a producer, um, then, you know, it, it's, tough to, it's tough times. But um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. And it also doesn't mean that some of these kind of, you know, um, pastiches and homages and things like that aren't actually also exciting and interesting. Absolutely. I think. And I'm glad you could say that on our podcast, which is kind of the goon show meets Garrison Keillor. <laughs> oh, no? I don't know how to sell it otherwise. Yeah. No, I'm on the goon show, you know, I'm, I'm happy with that. Now, Mel, please tell us, whom have you picked for your poll? Hellas for Hyphenet's Filmmaker of the Month. I have picked producer Ted Hope. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Producer? I know, a it's produce- a radical, crazy move, but um, when you contacted me and said you have to pick a filmmaker who's someone who's important to you, um, you know, th- there are lots of people whose work I really admire, um, but I have to say that Ted Hope um, is um, an extraordinary inspiration and has actually produced some of my favourite films. And so now I'm go- he's, like, he's produced like 80 films or something absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And he is um, incredibly prolific. But let me just start, okay, <laughs> um, uh, The Wedding Banquet. Eat, drink, man, woman, uh, Brothers Macmillan, Safe, Walking and Talking, uh, The Ice Storm, uh, Happiness, possibly, in, definitely in my top five of all time. Yep. Um, storytelling, which if you are involved with the film business, and particularly documentary filmmaking, and you have not seen storytelling, do yourself a favour, as Molly would say, bless him. Um, lovely and Amazing, American Splendour, 21 Grams, Thumb Sucker, which I loved. Uh, the Savages, um, uh, Martha, Marcy, May Marlene, that we spoke about earlier, Dark Horse. I mean, the man is unbelievably prolific. And there are so many great ones that, like, I mean, it's such a long list that you even had to leave some great ones out. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I've left out heaps. Yeah, yeah. But it's also, you know, and again, you look here, here is a producer who has repeat relationships with directors. Yes. So he mm. has genuinely found a way to kind of bring the best out of creative collaborators. And also is like you guys on the Twitter, you know, in the Twitter sphere and um, on Facebook and all of that kind of thing. He has a blog on IndieWire. Um, he used to just do it himself, but then um, IndieWire thought it was so fantastic they've got him doing it. So he's someone who actively gives to his community as well. Mm. So the man has an iPhone app. Hope for oh, film. Oh, really? Yes. See, I, maybe I do need to get an iPhone. Um, <laughs> but but um, I was looking at the uh, yeah. the directors he's worked with. He, yeah. He's worked at least once with Ed Burns, John Waters, James Gunn, Alan Ball, Hal Hartley, Alejandro Gonzalez, Inarato, Inarito, sorry, uh, Nicole Holofcener, um, Mike Mills, Michelle Gondry, Charlie Kaufman, Todd Solons, Todd Field, uh, Ang Lee, but Freundlich. It, Sounds like and the on a greatest short, Sundance orgy of all time. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I just think like this is this is someone who I literally, I mean, he's he's been out to the um, Spa conference. He was out here a oh, number right. of years ago. Um, he's someone who's actively engaged with the filmmaking community worldwide. Really, totally dedicated to independent cinema. You know, we, we were just talking about kind of you know who are the people who support independent voices and new storytelling. Yeah. Well. Ted Hope is your man, mm. you know, and he was behind, um, he was involved with Killer Films, he was involved with Good Machine, he was involved with This Is That, and now has a company called, with his wife, um, who's Vanessa Hope, uh, and they are called Double Hope. <laughs> and, um, you know, I just think that um, that he is a producer who has clearly made a significant contribution to worldwide independent cinema. And he's kind of a guy that throughout his career you can tell 
is not afraid to get in on the ground floor. Absolutely. Um, he's, he teamed with Hell Hartley on his very first film, um, The Unbelievable Truth, and then became a line producer on Trust and eventually, I think, by Simple Men, was a full, fully-fledged producer. Um, that may actually be his first... That or The Wedding Banquet is his first actual producing credit. Yeah. Um, and with Ang Lee as well, he was an associate, uh, an executive producer on Pushing Hands, and then and a that producer was before on... anyone who knew over here knew who Ang Lee well, was. Well, Ang Lee was a guy from NYU who had made yeah. some shorts, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. and he wasn't. He wasn't. Yeah, he's not yet. Brokeback Mountain Ang Lee. Yeah. yeah. Um, and same with Ed Burns. Ed Burns yeah, he yeah. jumped jumped on that when that you know went to Sundance, and uh, you know, and just. So many uh, Solons with his second film, with yeah. uh, with happiness, and and he's been really um, careful to uh, sort of maintain these relationships, and is obviously a creative partner with these guys. Yeah, and and, and look, you know, and I think that that's that's one of the things for me um, in in choosing to, to to pick a producer because one of the things about producing is because our fingerprints aren't on the finished product of a film, it's very hard to kind of work out what producers do, and when you look at someone like Ted, you can actually see what a producer does because he is an advocate not just for the films and the filmmakers that he's working on, but for the idea of independent cinema. Mm. He is a great communicator, as is evidenced by all of his blogs and, you know, uh, all of that. He is an enthusiast. He's always excited about something new, which, you know, you know, a lot of people who've produced as many films as him have, you know, closed the gate and gone, thank you very much, and mm. that aren't, aren't active and engaged with the community, whereas Ted is someone who's always out there attending seminars, doing workshops, and, you know, absolutely spruiking his own material. Don't worry about that, because yeah. he is a salesman. <laughs> but he's also engaged and engaging, and mm. I think that, that that's why he is a real hero for me. And I don't kind of mean in a kind of glorified hero worship way, but just looking at someone and going, like, that is a model that I really like, and that is a model that I like to see work and you know basically you know with this and that they aim to make four films a year now that is a fantastic kind of you know for an independent film company that's a fantastic um, ambition because basically if they made four films a year then every two years they'd have to have a hit yeah yeah. otherwise they'd have to revise revise the scenario you know but like you know thinking in that kind of way which is actually you know work with people you like have a bigger slate you know and and actively aim to have quite a diverse range of new and exciting voices. Yes. You know, you don't have to make kind of, you know, you don't have to do the kind of, you know, Oceans series, mm. you know. Yeah. You can actually be true, stay true to your guns, but you have to have a diverse enough slate just the way that, um, you know, this is that and Good Machine and, you know, and hopefully Double Hope is a relatively new company, yeah. but, you know. The runs on the board so far make it look like a winning strategy. This is that for such a like. I mean, they've as you said, they've just wound up that and created double hope. Uh, this is that in their f- what eight year history have yeah. the most amazing list of films. Like I think they've Absolutely. produced eighteen films, and among them, twenty one Grams, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which is one yeah. of my top ten favorites. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alan Ball's debut, Towelhead. Yeah, um, amazing film. And actually, I do absolutely have to um, say, Anne Carey um, was Ted's business partner for years and years and years. I believe they went to film school together. They did. They met and the then, first day in the morning. Yeah, year. and and um, and she was at. Um, a good machine, and this is that, I believe. And I think that the new company, Double Hope, doesn't include her, but she certainly was Ted's kind of, you know, creative uh, producing partner for years and years and years. And again, that's why for me, um, that, that idea of produce, genuine creative producers collaborating together 
is is such a powerful model, you know. Mm. So I think, you know, they definitely, I mean, she definitely um, was a producer on Savages, a Thumbsucker. So I would like to say, you know, Ted Hope and Anne Kerry, but you yeah. just said I had one. So <laughs> well, we, we always... Ted. We always specify uh, filmmaker and auteur when we come to this segment. Mm. Uh, we, we never sort of underline director, even though obviously everyone up until now has picked a director. Yep. And one of the reasons for that is, uh, you know, I do think an auteur can be the director or the writer or the producer. Even yep. even composers and production designers, I think, can claim to be authors. authors. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when, when you said Ted Hope, I, I, mm. I did say, so he had, what is his authorial voice and I'm wondering what I mean I'm looking at this incredibly diverse list of films wondering what is that through line Um, I mean I you know I mean I literally think that if you look at the um, the the films you know in a way you could say that a producer not so much as is the author in this in this context but perhaps the curator Mm-hmm. All right, so that that will the, what you look at when you look at a producer's body of work is you you can see the voices or or the, the art or mm-hmm. you know the, the stories that they're attracted to, and I think if you look at the work um, that Ted has produced, there's really uh, a very clear um, uh, voice. That of his, which is about questioning status quo, questioning positions of authority. You know, if you think about the ice storm, what's mm. that saying? If you think about savages, what's that saying? If you think about uh, happiness, what's that saying? I mean, I think that there really are, um, as a um, creative voice, I, I've i met Ted once and very briefly and didn't have an opportunity to talk about his personal politics, mm. but I could pretty much guess what his personal politics would be. I would be guessing he's left-leaning. I would be guessing he's kind of, you know, um, interested in social justice. I would be, you know, and I think that there is really, you know, I mean, I think if you sat down and watched every single one of the 60 films he's produced, Mm. that you would have a pretty clear idea about who he is um, by, by the kind of work that he's, you know, collaborated on. The clear thread I get is outsiders. Yeah, yeah. Outsiders in terms of his approach to independent film uh, as, as, as a viable model, his, the filmmakers he teams up with, whether it's, uh, you know, a baby of the New York art world in Hell Hartley or whether it's an Asian-American kid, mm. and you know, who managed to go to NYU in Ang Lee or whether it's, you know, a, a, a blue-collar guy from Long Island in Ed Burns or um, whether it's uh, Todd Solondz. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it's so many. And, and the films are also about outsiders a lot of the times as well. Yeah. Um, society's outsiders or... Uh, when, when I glanced at the list of films, I was looking over it going, oh, sure, my, my initial reaction was, you know, sure, he's an independent filmmaker, but he's, you know, he's obviously gone to the to the big hits. And then uh. I thought, wait a second, these they're big hits after the fact. These are films mm. that last, they're memorable. If you approach most of these stories, Towelhead and Super and Martha Marcy May and, and Happiness, approaching them from the beginning uh, without knowing there'll be a big hit later, they look like dangerous yeah, films. Yeah, he's absolutely brave, you know, because the thing is that, that, and this is something that people don't understand about producing, but it's um, it's one thing for, um, you know, Todd Salons to sit down and write Happiness. Mm. It's another thing for Ted Hope to go and finance it. Yeah. He has to go out and convince people that this, you know, this is going to work. You know, this story about, you know, a pedophile and he's the hero of the piece, that's some pretty good hmm. sales work there, yeah, yeah. right? The pitch for that, you know, 
you know, I'd pay a million bucks to see that pitch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because, you know, that film, it's Todd Sloan's brilliant, but you, you want to make it him, about, yeah. but you want to make a film about what? It's the yeah. ultimate unsellable film. Yeah. You know, so I think that there is something about that, you know, that, that in a way, a producer, when you're pitching, um, and in fact, I'm going to name tech one of my all-time favourite little bits from um, uh, animated film, which is the um, in Bolt, um, the um, mm. pigeons in LA. I don't know if you guys remember that, but I'll Vaguely, send you a link yeah. and you can put attach it to the podcast because okay. it is, of course, on YouTube. But it's um it's these little pigeons who pitch to Bolt. Who um it's basically Bolt is like Truman in the Truman Show. Mm. Um, anyway, but um when you're doing when you're pitching, you know what you are doing is you're usually pitching to someone who then has to pitch it to the person who has actually got the money that they're going to give you. So you have to create something really memorable, but you also have to kind of you know have anticipated why they will say no to it and give them the answer to why they will say to no to it without sounding negative. Yeah. So it's a, you know, it's a ridiculous job that we have, but it does sort of make us the frontline storytellers for all ideas. So, you know, these complex films don't get made if they don't have an incredibly competent producer who is able to articulate really complex, ambivalent ideas with passion, energy and enthusiasm and also when they go... But the league guy's the pedophile, you know. Yeah. Like he really, him. He has to be, you know. He can't be this other guy. Yeah. You know, and you know that's how great films get made. Is yes, someone sits down and writes the script, but if you don't have an amazing advocate pushing it out there for you, well, it, it just remains an amazing script. And, and you know, there are amazing scripts out there that haven't been made. Yeah. And even during production, though. Like, you know, if people will finance it on the provisor, that maybe I can get him to change his mind later. Maybe if, you know... Well, you see, and again, you know, that's one thing as a producer as well. um, is, is that you need to make sure that you, um, you never finance on a lie because mm. then you really get into trouble. But, you know, yeah. but it is, you know, it is about your ability to persuade people yeah. that actually, you know... No, I was saying financiers. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, the pedophile can be the lead right now. Yeah, no worries. And it's like, yeah. we got the money. We'll strong arm this guy later down the line to change it. Like, you know, because finances always like to have their say. Well, you know, and, and you know, uh, if you give me a million dollars, I'm going to be pretty amenable to your ideas. Yeah. What do you think the key moments of his career were, the key films that sort of changed either him or the, the industry, I guess? Um, look, I think, I think happiness is a high-water mark. I think Ice Storm yep. and the enormous amount of success that that had. Um, but I think Ted's greatest moments are yet to come. I mean, he's still a relatively young man and uh, he, he's, he's just going 50. from strength to strength. Really? I know. Yeah. Yeah. He's had more films than he has. I know, I know. Years he, makes, yeah. he makes all of us look completely ridiculous. I mean, I've only produced one film, and here I am, you know, talking about him. But um, he has done um, an extraordinary amount of uh, work. But his best work is ahead of him. I mean, he and he absolutely no sign of slowing down. So yeah, I mean, he's absolutely terrific. And yeah, young man, it, you know, at, you know, at the height of his career, and really open to new paradigms of film financing, of film marketing, film of, making. Like he's yeah. he's, a, he's a proponent of crowd. Sourcing. He's a proponent of, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, DSLR filmmaking. He's and a independent distribution internet. forms, and but always just looking at how, as independents, can we be faster, better, smarter, quicker? Yeah, yeah. you know. So it's an ability to adapt that's also added to. 
and it's but it's also that genuine sense of real curiosity. Yeah. You know, and not just you know just because he's made it doesn't mean he's stopped looking mm. at how how we can all make it better and fairer and more interesting. And you that know? excitement you mentioned earlier as yeah, well. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and 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 the sense of kind of you know uh, passionate engagement um, with the world, you know, which is fantastic. Mm. I mean, you know, what's not to love? I think it's worth mentioning that because um, when he first started, he teamed with a guy named James Seamus. Yes. In a company called Good Machine. Yeah. And it was though, and they were a team. And Seamus yeah. was also a writer, and and they worked. They were particularly close with, as we've said, Ang Lee and Hell Hartley, and yeah. some of those guys coming up. And they became so successful that Good Machine ended up being bought by um, Universal. Yeah. And they were kind of offered the chance to run Focus Features, which was Universal's independent arm that still runs to this day. James took that role. Ted didn't. Yeah. Ted went and started This Is That, yeah. which I think is a very important point. It's that. Well, it, I think it's also. I mean, James is um, uh, older. Uh, you know, like significantly older than Ted, and and. Um, I think that, that that probably had a lot to do with that as well, mm. which is that Ted was still kind of curious and hungry and interested in kind of, you know, earning his own, you know, um, you know James was a very experienced um, and established producer mm. when they were working together. And I think it's just that thing of kind of, you know, partnering. And I think that's when he and Anne really sort of partnered up as well. Yeah. And, um, they, they, you know, because they were peers, you know, and it was yeah. that real sense of kind of, well, let's get out and do some more stuff. And, and I think that that's one of the things too about um, Ted as a, auteur is that he has this kind of dynamic energy that is about kind of let's keep going let's keep going like you know what's new what's next you know and that that's inspiring as well because you know um as you guys know i um used to have a company called melodrama pictures and i've just changed it to a company called optimism because i realized that i want to be like that i want to be looking at the new thing and feeling great because you meet a lot of people in the film business and they're not um optimistic um they talk about oh it's really tough and it's really hard and it's really this and i'm never paid enough and i'm not acknowledged enough and this and that and the other and i think you know that um that is kind of a bit sad when actually what we do is we work in the dream factory yeah and if we work in the dream factory it, you know uh it should be hard because otherwise um it would be messy and overcrowded um you know there is a certain amount of effort that should be um put into any um endeavor i think and by god we should be having fun or at least be optimistic about the future and i think that ted hope and hope for film and that kind of thing it's an is, apt surname yeah. yeah yeah no and he he is a hopeful human and yeah. um and happily he gives a lot of other people hope too including me We'll just mention, too, you have a little seminar coming up. Oh, I do. It's Shameless a, promotion moment. Sounds excellent for, uh, for uh, upcoming, uh, emerging uh, film and TV practitioners. It's called Learned Optimism. Yes. And uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Um, basically, um, one of the things that I think is frustrating for people who are either um, new to the business or um, interested uh, in developing their skills further is that there are lots of courses and this is a course and it's on the 17th of March and if you're interested you should contact alicia at optimismfilm.com Details on the Hell's Hyphenates website? Um, but basically one of the things that we've kind of recognised is that the frustration so many people have is that you go along to a course but but no one will actually talk to you about your actual project or your actual career. So you go along and they go, oh, it's all fantastic and this is how you do it and blah, blah, blah and just do these 17 things and then apply for funding. But no one will actually sit down with you and go, this is this this is the thing about your project that makes your project not market ready at the moment. And that is what we offer. So if you come along to our course, you'll get a usual kind of day's overview about producing um, in the industry, but also you get a taste of what we call our 
bespoke mentoring. <laughs> yes, that's my fancy European term. Um, but basically, it's it's just an opportunity to work work on a one on one basis with an experienced, active, you know, currently working producer. And there's more information about that on our website as well. And so. the website is opt, uh, Optimism Film. Dot com. Com. Yeah. And uh, that seminar is the 17th of March, 2012. Yeah. So, so please come along. Thank you so much, Mel. It's and my pleasure. Thanks for joining us. the rest of you next month. Keep watching stuff. Bye.